Hey there, Joy and Conversation listeners. We have something a little different for you this week as a gesture of thanks. We're sharing a bonus episode with you, which is inspired by our 10th and most recent episode, A Bundle of Letters. If you haven't listened to it, check it out to hear the conversation I had with Gina Green, Lynn Harris, and Hannah Pollock of The Forward Newspaper and its podcast, A Bindle Brief. Their podcast is a reinterpretation of the Yiddish advice column launched by The Forward in 1906. For this bonus episode, we're immersing ourselves in the letters sent to this advice column well over 100 years ago. We hope that you enjoy this bonus episode, which is our small gesture of thanks for all the encouragement that we've received so far. If you like what you've heard in the first 10 episodes of Joy and Conversation and want 10 more and 10 more after that, we ask that you show your support. So subscribe, review, and share the podcast. Help us grow our audience so that the show reaches even more curious learners and continues to offer textured conversations that bring Jewish history and culture into sharper focus. Okay, so now, without further ado, here's Voices from the Archives, a Bintel Brief. Zwei Mutner strömen in Zneifguss von Sonneken Schimmer, zwei blottig zerpliatschete Fies und Ibersee a patrizischer Kopf, die Bäuerin, heim von chinesisch Theater, von Bombs und von Missions. Canal Street, die Gast von billigen jüdischen Misker und sei Binze Neuf auf sehr grilltigen Läuf auf Finklinder Schnall, der geschmuckter Portal von Manhattan Break. Worthy Editor. Worthy Editor. Dear Editor. Worthy Editor. Worthy Editor. Dear Editor. This letter is written to you by a young widow. I am a young man of 21. I have been in America almost three years. I am a girl 22 years of age, but I've already undergone a great deal in my life. I join all the others who marvel at your Bintel brief. I beg you, worthy editor, give me a suggestion. Awaiting your opinion on this. I wait impatiently for your answer. I decided to write to you because I want to hear your opinion. I beg you to give your opinion about this problem and answer quickly. I wait with greatest impatience to see my letter and your answer printed. Thank you in advance. I wait impatiently for your answer. In 1906, the Vorwärts, or the Forward, a Yiddish newspaper with a democratic socialist orientation, launched an advice column to answer the questions pouring in from readers that stacked up as a bundle of letters in the paper's New York City headquarters. The column was a bintel brief. For Jewish immigrants from Eastern Europe trying to navigate urban life, the pressures of assimilation, yearnings for personal success, and all the love and loss that came along the way, a bintel brief offered an outlet for their uncertainty. It provided hope that questions could be answered and that the future held more prospects than the present. What follows are the questions posed and the answers given 
on the pages of the foreword over a century ago. Dear Editor, I am a young man of 21. I have a 17-year-old cousin, and she and her parents would like me to marry her. I like the girl. She's educated, American-born, not bad-looking, but she's quite small. That is the drawback. For her age, she is very short, and I happen to be tall. So when we walk down the street together, people look at us as a poorly matched couple. Another thing, she is very religious, and I am a free thinker. I ask you, esteemed editor, could this lead to an unpleasant life if we were to marry? I wait impatiently. Love conquers all. Many such couples live happily, and it's better for the man to be taller and the woman shorter, not the opposite. People are accustomed to seeing the man more developed than the woman. People stare, let them stare. Also, the fact that the girl is religious and the man is not can be overcome if he has enough influence on her. Dear Editor, since I do not want my conscience to bother me, I ask you to decide whether a married woman has the right to go to school two evenings a week. My husband thinks I have no right to do this. I admit that I cannot be satisfied to be just a wife and mother. I am still young and I want to learn and enjoy life. My children and my house are not neglected, but I go to evening high school twice a week. My husband is not pleased, and when I come home at night and ring the bell, he lets me stand outside a long time, intentionally, and doesn't hurry to open the door. Now he has announced a new decision. Because I send out the laundry to be done, it seems to him that I have too much time for myself, even enough to go to school. So from now on, he will count out every penny for anything I have to buy for the house. So I will not be able to send out the laundry anymore. And when I have to do the work myself, there won't be any time left for such foolishness as going to school. I told him that I'm willing to do my own washing, but that I would still be able to find time to study. When I am alone with my thoughts, I feel I may not be right. Perhaps I should not go to school. I want to say that my husband is an intelligent man and he wanted to marry a woman who was educated. The fact that he is intelligent makes me more annoyed with him. He is in favor of the emancipation of women, yet in real life, he acts contrary to his beliefs. Awaiting your opinion on this, I remain your reader, the discontented wife. Since this man is intelligence and an adherent of the women's emancipation movement, he is scolded severely in the answer for wanting to keep his wife so enslaved. Also, the opinion is expressed that the wife absolutely has the right to go to school two evenings a week. Worthy editor. This letter is written to you by a young widow. I was married during wartime, and ten weeks after the wedding, my husband was drafted. He was shipped to France, 
He saw action in the battles, and my anxiety was great. But my joy was even greater when the war ended and my husband was alive and unhurt. When my husband left the battlefields, before they sent him home, he wrote me letters that breathed of joy and hope. Soon we will be together, and we will never part again, he wrote. Suddenly, a telegram from the government brought me the shocking news that my dear husband had died of pneumonia. It is impossible to describe what I lived through. But life goes on. I work and earn a living, but I am lonely. Now it's like this. In the house where I live, I met a young man whose wife died last year and left him with a child. I became friendly with him, and he suggested that I marry him. I love his child and feel sympathy for it, because I, too, was left a young orphan. It is a good match for me, and I want to marry the young widower, but one thing holds me back. I heard that the government is going to bring back to America all the soldiers who fell on the battlefields in Europe. The next of kin of these soldiers will then have the opportunity of burying them and erecting headstones at their graves. No one knows when it will be done, but I wouldn't want to get married before they bring my dead husband home. I want to have a funeral and provide a headstone for him. The young man, however, wants us to get married now so his child can have a home as soon as possible. But the memory of my husband keeps me from taking this step. Some of my friends advise me to leave the money that the burial and the headstone will cost with his family and they will take care of everything. But my heart won't let me do this. I beg you to give your opinion about this problem and answer quickly. Respectfully, The Young Widow. There is some talk in the War Department about bringing home from France the fallen American soldiers and giving them a burial here with full military honors. When this will occur is not yet known. It is possible that they may never bring them home. Therefore, it would be advisable for the writer of this letter to consider the suggestion of her friends, which is quite practical. Worthy editor, I have been in America almost three years. I came from Russia, where I studied at a yeshiva. My parents were proud and happy at the thought that I would become a rabbi. But at the age of 20, I had to go to America. Before I left, I gave my father my word that I would walk the righteous path and be good and pious. But America makes one forget everything. Here I became an operator, and at night I went to school. In a few months, I entered a preparatory school where for two subjects I had a Gentile girl as teacher. I began to notice that the teacher paid more attention to me than to the others in the class, and in time, she told me I would be better off taking private lessons from her for the same price I paid to the school. I agreed, and soon realized that her lessons with me were not ordinary. For example, I was to pay $5 a month for two hours a week, but she gave me three lessons a week, each lasting two and sometimes three hours. 
Then I had to stop the lessons because I had no money to pay her. However, she wanted to teach me without pay, explaining that she taught not only for money, but also because teaching gave her pleasure. In short, I began to feel at home in her house, and not only she, but also her parents welcomed me warmly. I ate there often, and they also lent me money when I was in need. I used to ask myself, what am I doing? But I couldn't help myself. There was a depression at the time. I had no job and had to accept their aid. I don't know what I would have done without her help. I began to love her, but with mixed feelings of respect and anguish. I was afraid to look her in the eyes. I looked at her like a Russian soldier looks at his superior officer, and I never imagined that she thought of marrying me. A few weeks ago, I took the regent's examinations for entering college. After the exams, my teacher told me not to look for work for a few weeks, but to eat and drink at their home. I didn't want to, but she insisted, and I couldn't refuse. Many times upon leaving her house, I would decide not to return, but my heart drew me to her, and I spent three weeks in her house. Meanwhile, I received the report on my examinations, which showed that I had passed with the highest of grades. I went directly to her to show her the report, and she asked me what I planned to do. I answered that I didn't know as yet, because I had no money for college. That's a minor problem, she said, and asked if I didn't know that she was not indifferent toward me. Then she spoke frankly of her love for me and her hope that I would love her. If you are not against it, my parents and I will support you while you study. The fact that I am a Gentile and you a Jew should not bother us. We are both, first of all, human beings, and we will live as such. She told me she believed that all men in all nations were equal. I was confused, and I couldn't answer her immediately. In Europe, I had been absorbed in the yeshiva, here with my studies, and I knew little of practical life. I do agree with her that we are, first of all, human beings, and she is a human being in the fullest sense of the word. She is pretty, intelligent, educated, and has a good character. But I am in despair when I think of my parents. What heartaches they will have when they learn of this. I asked her to give me a few days to think it over. I go around confused, and yet I am drawn to her. I must see her every day. But when I am there, I think of my parents, and I am torn by doubt. I wait impatiently for your answer. Respectfully, Skeptic from Philadelphia. We can only say that some mixed marriages are happy, others unhappy. But then many marriages between Jew and Jew, Christian and Christian are not happy either. It is true, however, that in some mixed marriages, the differences between man and wife create unhappiness. Therefore, we cannot take it upon ourselves to advise the young man regarding this marriage. This he must decide for himself. Worthy editor, 
I am a girl 22 years of age, but I've already undergone a great deal in my life. When I was born, I already had no father. He died four months before my birth. And when I was three weeks old, my mother died too. Grandmother, my mother's mother, took me in and soon gave me away to a poor tailor's wife to suckle me. I was brought up by the tailor and his wife, and got so used to them that I called them mother and father. When I grew up, I learned from the tailor how to do hand sewing and machine sewing too. When I was 16, my grandmother died, and left me her small, dilapidated house. The rabbi of the town sold it for me, for 300 rubles, and gave me the money. In time, one of the tailor's apprentices fell in love with me, and I didn't reject his love. He was a fine, honest, quiet young man, and a good earner. He had a golden character, and we became as one body and soul. When I turned 17, my bridegroom came to me with a plan, that we should go to America, and I agreed. It was hard for me to take leave of the tailor's good family, who had kept me as their own child, and oceans of tears were shed when we parted. When we came to America, my bridegroom immediately started to work, and he supported me. He was faithful and devoted. I'll give you an example of his loyalty. Once, during the summer in the terrible heat, I slept on the roof, but it started to rain in the middle of the night and I was soaked through to the bone. I got very sick and had to be taken to the hospital. I was so sick that the doctor said I could be saved only by a blood transfusion. My bridegroom said immediately that he was ready to give me his blood, and so, thanks to him, I recovered. In time, I went to work at the famous Triangle Shop. Later, my bridegroom also got a job there. Even at work, he wanted to be with me. My bridegroom told me then, we will both work hard for a while, and then we'll get married. We'll save every cent so that we'll be able to set up a home, and then you'll be a housewife and never go to work in the shop again. Thus, my good bridegroom mused about the golden fruit. Then there was that terrible fire that took 147 young, blossoming lives. When the fire broke out, the screaming, the yelling, the panic, all bewildered me. I saw the angel of death before me, and my voice was choked in my throat. Suddenly, someone seized me with extraordinary strength and carried me out of the shop. When I recovered, I heard calming voices and saw my bridegroom near me. I was in the street, rescued, and saw my girlfriends jumping out of the windows and falling to the ground. I clung to my bridegroom and rescuer, but he soon tore himself away from me. I must save the other girls, he said, and disappeared. I never saw him alive again. The next day, I identified him in the morgue by his watch, which had my picture pasted under the cover. I fainted, and they could hardly bring me to. After that, I lay in the hospital for five weeks and came home shattered. This is the fourth year that I'm alone, and I still see before me horrible scenes of the fire. I still see the good face of my dear bridegroom, also the black-burned face in the morgue. I am weak and nervous, yet there is now a young man who wants to marry me, but I made a vow that I would never get married. Besides that, I'm afraid that I'll never be able to love another man. But this young man doesn't want to leave me, and my friends try to persuade me to marry him and say everything will be all right. I don't believe it, because I think everything can be all right for me only in the grave. I decided to write to you because I want to hear your opinion. Respectfully, a faithful reader. It is senseless for this girl to sacrifice her life in memory of her faithful bridegroom, since this would not bring him back to life. What the earth covers must be forgotten.
She has suffered enough in her life already and is advised to take herself in hand and begin her life anew. Worthy editor, in the Bintel brief, I have already read about many kinds of problems, but never about such a misfortune as the one that befell me. I beg you to print my letter as quickly as possible and advise me how to save myself. About four years ago, when I was still at home in Russia, a young man from another city boarded with us. When I decided to go to America, he told me he wanted to go too. At the time, I was 19 years old. But my mother, who was a widow, said it was not proper for a girl and a boy to make such a long journey together. She hinted that if we were planning to get married, it would be all right. As long as I liked the man who was quiet and decent, I answered my mother that if he agreed, I would too. My mother began to talk to him, and he said it was impossible because he had a girlfriend who he was going to marry. Meanwhile, I fell in love with the young man. My love for him grew from day to day until I couldn't restrain myself any longer, and I spoke to him openly about it. He listened to me attentively and told me, too, that he was obligated to his sweetheart. When I asked him who she was and where she lived, he didn't answer me but burst into tears. I was suffering and decided to leave for America as soon as possible in order to forget him. When I finally got a steamship ticket for my aunt and began to get ready for the trip, the young man came to me one day and told me he loved me and wanted to marry me. Then I was the happiest girl in the world. We became engaged and decided that right after the wedding, we would go to America together. A few weeks passed and the day of our wedding came. The guests gathered, the music played gaily, but about an hour before the ceremony, my bridegroom called me into another room and he told me he couldn't marry me because he didn't want to make me unhappy. He explained it was all a mistake on his part because he couldn't forget his sweetheart. I didn't know what hit me. I began to cry and plead with him to have pity on me and not shame me so, but he was adamant. Since I thought his sweetheart was in America, I promised him that if he found her, I would release him. He grasped my hands and kissed them, and after that, we went through with the ceremony. A few weeks after the wedding, we left. My aunt, who met us in America, greeted us warmly, and my uncle found a good job for my husband. My husband loved me honestly, and of course I loved him, and we lived together happily almost three years, but after that came my misfortune. I noticed weeks ago that he was upset. My heart told me then that something troubling was brewing. He went about sadly, and I heard him sighing and groaning. He started coming home late and didn't even go over to our baby, who he loves very much. I finally asked him what happened to him. He looked at me. He asked me if I remember what I had promised him before the wedding. When I heard those words, I fainted and was sick for several days. When I felt better, he talked to me and with tears in his eyes begged me to calm down because there was no other way out. He explained that since he had just met his sweetheart who had been in America all the time, he no longer belonged to me but to her. He says he will leave me our home, his money, and will pay me alimony too, but we must part. I fell at his feet and cried and begged him to have pity on me and our young child, but he had one answer. It can't be any other way. I beg you, have mercy on me. My husband is a good man with fine character, and he is a faithful reader of the foreword. 
Write a few words to him in your answer to my letter. How can he demand of me that I set him free? The truth is that when I made him that promise, I never believed he would find his sweetheart. I wait with greatest impatience to see my letter and your answer printed. Thank you in advance. Heartbroken. The man has no right to leave his wife now after he lived with her for three happy years and has a child with her. Even though his wife promised before the wedding that she would be free of him, he dare not demand now that she keep her word. If he is really a decent man with a good heart and fine character, he must understand that he now has more obligation to his wife and child than to that sweetheart who vanished years ago and didn't concern herself about him. Dear Editor, I join all the others who marvel at your Bintel brief, where almost everyone who has something on his conscience or a secret can express himself. I too wish to get something off my chest, and I want your advice. I came to America as a shocker. The ship I was on sank. I was among the lucky ones who were rescued, but all my possessions, including the papers that certified that I am a shocker, was lost. Since I no longer could be a shocket, I became a shirt maker. Later, I worked my way up and became a cloak maker. But I was not satisfied because the physical labor and the degradation that we had to endure in the shops was unbearable. Within a few years, two of my brothers came from Europe. We stayed together and we all worked in a shirt shop. Several times we tried contracting, but it didn't work out. At that time, white collars for shirts came into fashion. We had to sew on neckbands to which the white collars were buttoned. This became a nuisance that delayed the work. Imagine having to cut out a band to fit each shirt that we made. This wasn't easy, and the boss gave us the job of making the bands at home as night work. In short, one of us got an idea. Since the whole trade found neckbands to be a problem, why not make the neckbands for all the manufacturers? Said and done. It worked out well. They snatched the bands from our hands, and we were very busy. We were the only ones in line from the start, and we prospered. Later, a few more shops opened, but that didn't bother us because the trade grew even bigger. Now we have a huge factory with our names on a big sign in front of the building. But the bands that gave us our start are no longer made by us alone. We have many coworkers, but have paid little attention to them since we were so involved in making our fortune. In time, I began to read your newspaper, and out of curiosity, even the Bintel Brief, to see what was going on in the world. As I read more and more about the troubles, my conscience awoke, and I began to think, robber, cold-blooded robber. My conscience spoke to me. Just look at your workers. See how pale and thin and beaten they look, and see how healthy and ruddy your face and hands are. This conscience of mine has a strong voice. It yells at me, just as I yell at my workers, and it scolds me for many of my offenses against them. It will be enough for me to give just a few samples of my evil deeds. The clock in our shop gets, quote, fixed twice a day. The hands are moved back and forth. The foreman has on his table a stick like a conductor's baton, and when someone says a word during working hours and he hears the tick-tock of that stick, 
Our wages are never under $2 or over $7 a week. My conscience bothers me, and I would like to correct my mistakes so that I will not have to be ashamed of myself in the future. But do not forget that my brothers do not feel as I do. And if I were to speak to them about all this, they would consider me crazy. So what is left for me to do? I beg you, worthy editor, give me a suggestion. Yours truly, B. We are very proud and happy that through the foreword and the bintel brief, the conscience of this letter writer was aroused. We can only say to the writer that he must not muffle the voice of his conscience. He will lose nothing, but will gain more and more true happiness. A special thanks to everyone that made this episode possible. Thanks to Nico Rivers for the idea to make a bonus episode featuring these letters. Thanks to everyone who lent their voice to this episode as well. Jordan Glass Poor lent her voice to the letter written by The Young Widow. Jordan is an investigative journalist and a podcast producer who, among her many other projects, is the co-founder of Local Switchboard NYC, a woman-led local news podcast covering New York City's five boroughs for and with the community. Learn more about Local Switchboard NYC at localswitchboard.nyc. Ariel Nissenblatt lent her voice to the letter written by a faithful reader. Ariel is an audio producer and consultant who also manages the community team at Squadcast, a remote recording software solution. Ariel's also the founder of Earbuds Podcast Collective. Learn more about Ariel at arielnissenblatt.com. Liz Apple lent her voice to the letter written by Heartbroken. Liz is a product designer and illustrator, as well as the co-founder of Paper Apple, a stationary brand and design studio. Learn more about Liz at lizapple.com and more about Paper Apple at paperapple.co. Elena Raphael lent her voice to the letter written by Discontented Wife. Elena is a psychotherapist and life coach based in California. Learn more about Elena's work at elenaraphael.com. Josh Friedman lent his voice to the letter written by Skeptic. Josh is a member of the band Dacha and the creator of the podcast Art and Life and Shit. Learn more about Josh at thatoneeyedkid.com and learn more about his band and podcast by checking out the show notes for this episode. Jared Zyman lent his voice to two letters, those written by Sympathetic and B. Jared is an assistant coach for the Canisius College women's basketball team in Buffalo, New York. The responses to each of these letters were read by Lee Zeidman. Lee is a strategic and crisis communications expert at 3D Communications. Not only that, but he's also Jared's father. The Yiddish poem, Manhattan Bridge, by Lieles was read by Mark Kaplan, the Brownstone Visiting Professor of Jewish Studies at Dartmouth College, and the author of How Strange the Change, Language, Temporality, and Narrative Form in Peripheral Modernisms, and also Yiddish Writers in Weimar, Germany, 
of fugitive modernism. This episode featured music from the Klezmer band, Ezekiel's Wheels. Thanks to Abigail Reisman, who plays violin in Ezekiel's Wheels, for being in touch throughout the production of this episode. To learn more about Ezekiel's Wheels, visit ezklezmer.com. And to learn more about Abigail Reisman's work, visit abigailreisman.com. Thanks as always to Nico Rivers for music supervision, as well as mixing and mastering Joy and Conversation. To learn more about Nico's work, visit nicoriversrecording.com. Alec Hudson is responsible for our graphic design and Klezmer theme song. Thanks to Alec for his talents and creativity. To learn more about Alec's designs, visit warbirdcreative.com. And to learn more about his music, visit alechudson.com. Our website design is by Jacob Lazaro. Our episodes feature music by the Boston-based Sephardic band, Voice of the Turtle. The group is no longer active, but their music is on Spotify, and their website remains a trove of Sephardic sounds. Listen and learn more at voiceoftheturtle.com. Thanks also to Blue Dot Sessions for making high-quality music available to creatives everywhere. And thanks to you, our audience, for your time and curiosity. Stay engaged with Joy and Conversation by subscribing on your podcast platform of choice and visiting our website, joyandconversationpodcast.com. Bashufaku, we'll see you next time.